So you want to watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark for movie night. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. Tonight we're covering a 1969 film by Bob Downey, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s father, called Putney Swope. And this is a Jared pick this week. Putney Swope, the Jaredest of picks. Man. I'm super, super excited to chat about this movie with you, man. Yeah, no, this was a really interesting pick, and I'm I'm excited to dive into it. But I think we got to start off the show with a yet again a return segment from last week, the mea culpa, the mea culpa segment, <laughs> or as Jared so so eloquently typed it on the uh, dartboard movie night Google Doc, Maya Copa. Maya Copa. Yeah, dude, I had no idea how to spell it. And when it comes to just stuff for us, I'm just like, I'm done with it. I'm just doing phonetic spelling so I could just read it and be done with it, you know? So let me take that again. This is the Maya Copa segment of the show. Maya Copa. M-A-Y-A space. Maya. Maya Copa. Maya Copa. But yeah, we had a couple of kind of like hanging chads from last week that we kind of wanted to discuss we had two scenes specifically that uh, I really wanted to revisit. And again, this is for the Bong Joon-ho movie that we discussed last week, Mother. Uh, one of the scenes you mentioned, which was really an interesting take, is you talked about that scene where they're attacking the wealthy people on the golf course, mm -hmm. right? After the hit and run incident and all that stuff. and All that stuff. The kind of the character who ends up turning into sort of the more investigative police character. He's not with the police, but he's just kind of looking into things. In that fight that breaks out in the sand trap, he throws the golf club into the pond. Yes. And you had a potential read that I thought was really interesting, which was like, was he doing that because he knew of the potential violence within the other character? And... Dojun, oh, the, the character who eventually gets arrested for murder. Yeah, precisely, Dojun. And um, upon rewatch, I don't think it was for that reason. I don't either. That was that was me grasping for something. But yeah, no, I think it was it was a cool a, a cool way to potentially take the scene. But Dojun, when he charges initially, has a stick in his hand, so he already has sort of a weapon of sorts. So I think that kind of was like, okay, so I don't think it was... So if he had the opportunity to, to commit violence, he would have done it. Yeah. It still I mean, would I have think that's that. probably fair. That stick was pretty flimsy, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It definitely not as lethal or intimidating as like a golf club, you know? Sure. But um, still was a, was a fun kind of topic of discussion. But upon review, I was like, nah, I, think, I think it was just... I think the question still remains, is he intentionally stashing it for later or just like chucking it and remembering just by happenstance. So that, I think, is still open for interpretation. It's kind of um, hard to tell because you could also read it as like the actor just was throwing it short because that's where they needed the club to land for the story, you know? Right, right, And right. like it, it might have read as like, 
the character doing that to go get it later, but maybe it was intended the other way. Who cares, though, at the end of the day? At the end of the day, he gets the club and the rest is history. And then the other scene that was kind of, we could have taken it different ways and we never really landed on it solidly was the scene where Jin Tai, played by Jin Gu, who is like, again, that investigative character. He's talking to mother in her house in the pouring rain and $5,000 is exchanged in the scene. And my recollection of the conversation is you were saying like, oh, is that, was that payment for the investigative services that he's going to deliver? And I, I read it as like, it was some sort of retribution debt. for yeah. debt for the, for putting him through that of like putting him under the police, you know, spotlight, so to speak. Uh, and on rewatch, I stuck with kind of my interpretation because okay. in that scene, he says, just pay $5,000 and he uses that word settlement, which we talked about last week, which occurs earlier in the movie after the altercation at the golf course. And the police are like, let's just settle this and move on. And the other thing is after he requests the $5,000 and receives it, he gets ready to leave and he mentions that, like, oh, we need to start an investigation. Oh, so the and investigation she, comes completely after the... Yeah, the, the investigation, investigation conversation happens after the $5,000 is handed over. Gotcha. And mother responds with, like, I didn't know you felt that way. So I, I, I'm, still, I'm still a little hazy on what the $5,000 was justifiably for. But I don't think it was... It was prepayment for investigation because it hadn't been brought up yet. And she is surprised that he is on the side of her son like mm. after that. So, so that is still a little blurry, honestly uh, on, on revisit. For me. I'll have to give it a watch. I, I should have done that. And I, I didn't, but um, yeah, that's interesting. No, no. But anyway, that's last week's business. And I think that's it for the brand spank and new Maya Copa. <laughs> mea copa segment the maya copa mea copa yeah yeah but we can we can charge ahead to the movie at hand for this week well how did this get on the board jared this is one of your picks i know that this is one that's been on your radar forever because it's been on mine for the same reason but uh yeah, yeah. Why, why don't you tell us why why this got on the board so i first heard of putney swope and i can't remember which came first but it was it was two storytellers and and the first one I'll mention was Paul Thomas Anderson. So it was on his WTF interview with Mark Marin, who it was it's a fantastic interview, by the way. Great discussion. That's when I first heard about it. Interesting. And he mentioned how <clears throat> Mark's asking him about how he got into wanting to make films. And he he mentioned how he saw these different movies like Raging Bull for the first time. And when he started getting into the deeper stuff, he kind of mentions how, you know, we're all blown away when we first see Spielberg or, or Star Wars for the first time. But when you get to that stuff that's a little bit deeper, that is what was really resonating with Paul. Not to say the other Spielberg stuff didn't, but he was saying that, that was when he was no, thinking Paul's like maybe... a massive Spielberg fan. And who isn't? Like Spielberg is just like the best. Uh, but he, but he was saying like again, not dismissing that other stuff, but but when he was seeing things like stuff that Robert Altman was making, 
and Scorsese and stuff. That was when he was like, oh, maybe I could do something like this. So that's when his specific sensibilities, based on this conversation anyway, seemed to start to get tickled, you know? And he mentioned Putney Swope. And he was saying like how like this movie, like really kind of, he found his way to it and it, it kind of blew his mind a little bit. He's like, he didn't know that this was out there. He didn't know this thing existed and he was really drawn to it. And then, you know, you and I both love PTA and I had heard that the firecracker edition and that sequence in Boogie Nights where there's just someone throwing firecrackers all around Alfred Molina's drug den. That was a, a steal or an homage, however you want to put it, to Putney Swope. So I started hearing this Putney Swope thing. It was like really influential to PTA. I never heard of, I knew who Robert Downey Sr.'s son was, but I had never really heard about him as a filmmaker. And then another thing came about also through the WTF podcast was a conversation that he had with Louis C.K. And obviously Louis is sort of a problematic person, but I really do like his show and I've liked it in the past. No, it, it was really brilliantly done. I mean, I think like regardless of any, any you know, issues, we can, we can appreciate, uh, yeah, a well-made show. It's a, just a good show. And he was talking to Mark Maron about how they were, because they're old friends and they go way back to starting a comedy in Boston. And Mark Maron was actually with him when he just bought Putney Swope at a blockbuster. It was on sale there on a whim and had no idea what it was. And he saw it and he said it was hugely influential to his storytelling and creative process. And he specifically said, like, it just showed him that you could do what, whatever you want creatively with a story. Like, it doesn't have to make sense. You can do anything. So I had these two kind of kernels, and it was something I always wanted to kind of check out. And I expected some weirdness from it based on this context that I had heard. But outside of that, I really didn't know much about the film. I've never seen another... Robert Downey Sr. film before this one. And um, it was just it seemed like a really good candidate for getting it on the board and, and checking it out, something we talk about a lot, like we mm -hmm. want to get to. So that's kind of my context with what brought me to put it on the board. What did, what did you know about this movie before going into it? Because this is something neither of us had seen, correct? I had not seen this before. Uh, I had been aware of it for a long, long time, though, and it ties into the same reason that you had heard of it, uh, which is Paul Thomas Anderson. And for me, I, the reason I kind of... <laughs> listeners won't know this, but I when, when Jared said that the first time he heard about this from Paul Thomas Anderson was from the WTF interview, which was probably like... I don't know, 2017 maybe. It was um, it was when Inherent Vice came out because that was his primary okay, reason so for going. So it was further back than that. Then it was 2015, like 20, 2014, like 2015, something like that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I was I was actually surprised just because the first time. I mean, I've been aware of this movie for a really long time because I was a uh, I'm a huge fan of Boogie Nights and I've owned the Boogie Nights Blu-ray for years and years. And on the Boogie Nights Blu-ray is there are two commentary tracks, one where Paul Thomas Anderson is interviewing a bunch of different actors uh, about the movie while they watch it. Um, and it's hilarious and awesome. And you get a bunch of great backstory. It's one of the great all time commentaries. 
And then he also did one where it's just him talking about the movie. And Paul is just, I mean, at that point he was on a lot of cocaine and was a motor mouth and would just (laughs) fucking go. So you could just like, you you just get so much fucking film knowledge just by listening to this guy talk about his movie and his process, like as you're watching it. And throughout his solo uh, commentary, he brings up Putney Swope. Like he mentions it multiple times and, and Mm. um, from my memory, it's been, I I should have listened to it before we, we did this, but um, I I distinctly remember him bringing it up a bunch and it's like, yeah, he, he mentions it as a huge influence and it, uh, so yeah, it's been on my radar for, for, you know, it sounds like a little bit longer than you, but, but either way, we've both been aware of this thing for a freaking long time. What was your, what was your reaction now that you've finally seen it? Um, I loved it. <laughs> I, okay. I, I really, I really loved it. It's, uh, it's not a perfect movie. There's, there's, there's plenty of stuff in the film that didn't work for me, but the vast majority of it worked insanely well for me. And I found myself so charmed by it. And specifically on rewatch too, I want to say it really was like the second viewing is really when it opened up for me. But there is just a sort of magical looseness to this film that I really found intoxicating. And it it really was 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 it it it's it's no surprise that it came up in conversation with Paul Thomas Anderson specifically about inherent vice. Because Mark Maron makes the point, it's like, oh, this is your most like Bob Downey's movies. And yeah. he agrees. And and I, I I now that I've seen Putney Swope, I see what a lot of these filmmakers are trying to get at. This sort of uh loose, loose feel that he has in this movie, I think, so incredibly well. And this sort of looseness is done in a way that for me, it's the best I've ever seen in terms of a movie that just unfolds in very unpredictable and silly ways and goes in any direction that it damn well pleases and does anything it wants. And it makes sense with Louis saying, like, you can do whatever you want. Like, I could see how a movie like this can unlock people's heads because Mm -hmm. it is just so bizarre and strange and hilarious, I think. Um, And again... I really found myself shifting into this movie's gear on the second watch and liking it a lot more. Still have some scenes and some things that I'm like, ah, doesn't really work for me. I think that's probably like a symptom of just being a comedy, really. Yes. Yeah. I think I think I I I read I mean, I read somebody online talking about this movie and they were saying like it's you know, it's inevitable in almost any comedy, even the best, like the Mel Brooks's of their times, like there's dated shit there's stuff that doesn't work Mm -hmm. um like comedy is the the stuff that ages the fastest you know yes yeah that's so true i wonder why it's it tends to spoil um but sensibilities change a lot in comedy over time yeah and then dramatic things somehow seem to be more everlasting in a way i don't know but but um yeah for whatever reason the things that I really agreed with in this movie, or I should say agreed with me and just provoked me to laughter and thought and all these things. I loved so much. 
So those parts of the movie really kind of swept me off my feet. I laughed my ass off. I thought it was fascinating on its own. And again, I saw it outside of the context we talked about in terms of like I knew about it from PTA and Louie mentioning it, things mm-hmm. like that. But in terms of what the story was and what the movie actually is, it was really a fresh experience for me. And I don't know. I just I, I found it really, really fascinating and a great watch and really, really funny. And then I heard all the backstory behind the movie and like how it was made and on what sort of budget and what they were doing to make it happen. And it was shocking to me to hear that because the movie doesn't look like it was made on such a shoestring. You know what I mean? I mean, there are elements of it where it shows that. But overall, in terms of things like the cinematography and different things, it's like this does not look like uh, they were just full blown winging this. Like, I don't want to say film school. It's more than that. But it's like they were just kind of doing it on the fly by hook or by crook. And you, I couldn't see that in the movie. Like, it hides its seams, I think, really, really well for the most it, part. It definitely strikes me as an, like an independent production that is pulling things off on a shoestring. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think this movie looks like massive budget. But you're right in that, like, they, they do hide those strings a lot. Yeah, like it's it's yeah. very it's it's I mean, it's well put together for for yeah. being shot the way that it was. Yeah. So to sum up my kind of initial impressions, the stuff I loved, I was really, really in love with. And I think it's going to become like a bit of like just for me, like a little little favorite, like certain scenes and certain things. I just are so in line with my sensibilities and I loved it. Yeah. Um, but that said, what was your reaction to seeing this movie i had a really good time with this movie i i think like again like comedies age really fast and and a lot of this movie doesn't work for me the way that it probably worked in 1969 um i think it it really goes bit by bit for me in this movie because it is so chaotic and all over the place that it feels kind of almost like a bunch of sketches smashed together more than it does a coherent narrative. Um, Totally. So in that sense, like it, and, and I want to talk about kind of the influences that this comment, that this movie had clearly like on, on not just Louis and and Paul Thomas Anderson, but like the entire alt comedy movement of, of, you know, recent years, I think all owes a debt of gratitude to this movie. So we'll, I want to get to that later, but but really, like, it's going to be hit or miss, you know, mm-hmm. it, it inevitably with this kind of structure. So I, I think in that sense, I really, really dug the movie. I don't I don't think I maybe loved it as much as you did. Um, I think it is of its time. So that, you know, keeps me from fully loving it. But mm-hmm. I had a fun time. I enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. Glad I watched it. Yeah. <clears throat> How, let me ask you this. How did you watch it? So I... Rented it from Videodrome, the brick and mortar DVD place in Atlanta, and so it was. They they were what out of the Blu-ray. Did they have, so did they, did they have the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray or? They had the Criterion DVD. Okay. And they were out of the Blu-ray, so they had the two jackets back to back, and the guy I couldn't find the the Bob Downey section. I mean, honestly, me with this it. movie's resolution, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of difference between DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And 
so I, I I had it on DVD. I saw that on the special features there was a commentary track, which I was really excited about, and put the movie in, fired it up, and it starts, and I'm like, holy shit! I didn't know this was black and white. Like that really surprised me. Did you know going into it that the vast majority of this movie is black and white? I had seen stills from this movie before, so yeah, I was aware. Oh, of that. okay, okay. So uh, yeah, that that surprised me, which gotcha. was kind of fun, and. The way the movie starts specifically, and this it's a great on. opener. What an amazing beginning to this movie. I mean, we've talked about it in the past, how we really love movies that just throw you into it. Yeah. You know, one that comes to mind is we felt that way about Bad Day at Black Rock. We felt that way about Aaron Brockovich. We do like movies that just start with a bang that just yeah, throw they just you right you into going. it. Get you going. Get you going. And this was like, I think my favorite of the intros we've seen so far, because it's just that really cool aerial helicopter shot of the city looking down on New York City. And then we see this helicopter land with this guy. We don't know who he is. He's got a Confederate flag and a skeleton, like a pirate, you know, skull and crossbones flag, like on his helicopter. And he gets off. And he shakes the other guy's hand, who's like kind of one of the oligarchs of the ad agency. And this great music just fucking kicks in. This like sick guitar lick. And I'm just like, what? What the fuck? This is really fucking cool. And I had expectations that it was going to be. I knew that shit would hook you right out of the gates. That, dude, that it, lick, that guitar oh, plays. Dude, that was right <laughs> up my street. Like I was <laughs> so like into it. something from like Brian Jonestown Massacre or something. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And to the point where I was shazamming it because I was like, is this a real song? Like I didn't I I didn't know if it was a song created for the film or if it was like a piece of pop music they roped into it. Uh, Shazam found nothing, which leads me to believe it was original music for the film. I don't know if that's true, but um so the, and then it just goes from there into this hilarious to me anyway boardroom sequence of this this marketing expert from the helicopter has a briefcase fucking chained to his <laughs> wrist if memory serves. Yeah. And he comes in and gives this like crazy like 20 or 30 second speech about what beer means and it's and like it, it's it's complete what people nonsense like about beer and it's all nothing. Yeah, it's bullshit. And then he leaves, and and the guy who meets him on the helicopter pad is walking him out of the boardroom. It's just like, beautiful, 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 saying it over and over. And they're like, oh, and how much was that guy? It's like twenty eight grand or some crazy number. And I like, at that point, it's like I am really into this movie so far. And again, it's very early on, but I'm just like, fuck yeah, dude, this is funny. It's it's strange, and it's really. Really, really good. <laughs> right up my right, right into my taste. No, I mean the boardroom scene. I think is like maybe my favorite scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. I, it it cracked me up. Like the like the <laughs> the guy <laughs> screaming fascist at the one guy, <laughs> and like you know the the, guy, the the when the the elder. Um, owner guy comes in and is given that whole speech and he just does the and then the old guy's how many syllables mario how many syllables mario yeah i was dead i was like this is fucking incredible 
And then the guy fucking dies. And yeah. as soon as he dies, they're taking his watch. They're taking his wallet. They're just picking his pockets like fucking vultures. And it's just so funny. And then they just continue the conversation of like, or not continue, but like they have, they have the conversation of who's going to replace him. And the dead While body dead just stays the there yeah. on the table for the whole conversation. Yeah. I was just like, this is so fucking funny. And just and so strange, so fucking crazy. Um, also, there's a quote in there I wanted to give a shout out yeah, to. Yeah, please. When the guy's talking about what admin means or whatever, it's like we arouse his desires, and then we satisfy these desires for a fixed price. Sounds familiar. <laughs> like it's just like a great comment on just like the whoring nature of fucking ad people. You know, it's just so so funny. Yeah, it's great. <clears throat> Um, no, that that kicks the movie off right, and then from there, obviously, Putney Swope uh, assumes the mantle of the chairman of that uh, company, and yeah, the movie takes <laughs> off from there. How did you feel? I wanted to talk about Arnold Johnson a little bit. I found mm-hmm. it interesting reading about this movie that he uh, <laughs> was dubbed over by the director Bob Downey, who we should probably <laughs> talk about first. But I kind of yeah, want to yeah. talk about first. How did you feel about the dubbing there? Um, it's funny. So, like, the first time, like, he speaks, it's like, is this dubbed? And then he's, there's that great shot. It's, like, straight in his face, down the barrel. And he's like, your father was a horse's ass. And But it's, like, such a clean dubbing. Like, it's it, that in that scene specifically, it's, like, that's perfectly in sync. But I was like, but that does not seem like the voice that is coming out of this person. And then as the movie progresses, I quickly realized like, oh, this whole thing is dubbed. And I was kind of in a, in a twist about it. I was like, well, what's the per- what's the meaning of that? Like, I mean, it's well, clearly it not this practical person. nature, which was yeah. that Arnold Johnson couldn't remember his lines. That that was something I loved finding out after the fact was like. Oh, it was not like a, uh, it was again, just like you said, it was a practical thing. He, he, uh, he struggled with his lines. The movie was so low budget that they didn't have time to reshoot all this stuff or like go back and, and get it again. So they just dubbed it. But I do think it, it added something kind of in a strange way to the film. Like it, it made it feel even more removed from reality in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think it ended up being a positive in a way. I do feel bad that the actor didn't have his voice in the film, but when, as we discuss him further, I do think he looks great in this movie and moves great. What did you think of, of the dubbing? Did you, did you know it going in or was it a surprise when you, no, I didn't know that going in. It was a surprise, but I think like, I don't know. It's weird for me because it's a white guy dubbing a black guy and doing kind of a, a weird, you know, kind of, I guess you would call it jive accent from back then uh, that they like, I, I don't know. Like, it, it's just like, it's problematic, man. You think so? Yeah, it's weird. And it's it's clearly a product of its time. So I'm giving it a long leash on that. And, you know, I want to preface this also by saying like, I feel kind of bad for my take on on uh, Cable Hogue. I feel like I was too harsh on that movie for being of its time. And I think like watching this, like there was definitely some parts where I was like, that's that wouldn't fly today. 
but oh, and me too, man. By the yeah. way, no, like, I, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean they're yeah. they're obvious, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But yeah, uh, <laughs> but at the same time, it did. You know, I I just I guess for me it doesn't add anything to the movie. I wish maybe they just let Arnold Johnson dub his himself in post. I don't really oh, yeah. get why it had to be Bob, but anyway. I mean, maybe it was a money issue. Maybe they would have had to pay him to dub it. I don't know. Uh, I think I feel, I, I, I get what you're saying. And I also, I don't think you should be hard on yourself for the Cable Hogue uh, take that you had. Because I think that's a good voice to have in this podcast. It's just you and I talking about stuff. But I think it's a valid point that I'm glad you're bringing up. I'd feel worse about it if... The reason was not practical that they removed it. If it was it was something else, it would feel a little stickier to me. But the fact that it was literally just like this guy stumbling on his yeah. lines. Yeah. And I guess there were a lot of other, you know, black actors in the film who were volunteering themselves to replace him. And they were like, I could do it. Just put me in, put me in, and I'll get the lines and we'll move on. And Robert Downey was like, We're too far along. We don't have enough budget to go back and reshoot all this stuff. And also, he really liked his look. And he so so I think that really speaks... For good reason. Yeah, yeah, for, for totally good reason. Like, like, he looks amazing on camera and moves splendidly well. I just love his deadpan face at all times. It's great. Yeah. And again, I, like, I, I get what you're saying, too, about the kind of problematic nature of it. But I do think... There's this kind of cool, strange little voodoo magic that sort of occurred by accident by having this voice that does not seem like it's coming out of this body. In yeah. it kind of it kind of it adds a little something. No, I'm, I'm I get what you're saying, and I don't I don't. Yeah. It doesn't really bother me. I just yeah. I think it's worth calling attention to. But I think yeah. you know you made a good point, which is like this movie was working on a freaking shoestring budget, and you know it's it, money is potentially an issue at, at for any of these kind of things that the movie deals with yeah. so that you know you you kind of put on here underground filmmaking and i kind of want to yeah. get into that like what why don't you talk a little bit about kind of how this movie was made because it sounds yeah. like you did a little more research than i did yeah so so i had seen and i'm pretty sure i'm right about the term underground filmmaking i think that's how also we should say i did not know this uh that bob downey passed away recently Mm -hmm. like uh less than a year ago yeah less than a year ago so that was news to me and i was i was sad to hear that um but i yeah i did i didn't know that but when i googled him for this film i saw that i think he was labeled as an underground filmmaker and i remember thinking well how is that different than an independent filmmaker i don't really know but then when i kind of heard the backstory to this specific film have you heard about the budget for this movie, by the way, no, tell me, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I mean, at the budget. time, that was more than it is now. But. <laughs> yeah, that's that's obviously with we could do the old few currency calculation. Now, but yeah, but it's that still is not a lot <laughs> to hire all these people and do this shoot. No, and they had this sort of very free flowing way of obtaining shots and doing things, and they had these kind of crazy workarounds that they had to do. And there are a lot of kind of cool anecdotes that I heard in the commentary of just how they just found a way to do these things. So, for example, in terms of like what an underground movie means in terms of how to get it off the ground, 
this boardroom scene that you and I were talking about of just like how how great that scene is. They did that entire thing in one day, which is insane. That's maybe what ten minutes. It's like wild. Mul- yeah. multiple characters, different angles, different lighting setups, a lot going on. One day, if, if anyone out Nuts. there, I don't know much about filmmaking. I know a little. That's insane to do all that in one day. You're selling yourself insane. short. You've worked on sets before. You understand what goes into a shot. Yeah, you could get you know in a day you could do like you know, not not that much. That's 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 crazy. Yeah. And then in addition to that, they did not have access to anywhere else in the building. So there's the scene at the end of after Putney Swope gets the position and it, it cuts and and he's replaced the board with just, you know, with black people. All of the black people during the scene with the white people had to hide under the table because they couldn't go. No one from the movie could be anywhere else in the building. And then when the black people were at the table, the white people had to hide under. So they had to do all these little kind of goofy tricks to just make this thing work. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's just, it's just again, one story of many. In addition to that, like a lot of the actors in this film, like if you if you Google it and you'll see normally, like if you type in a movie, you'll see the cast at the top. Everyone's got a picture. A lot of people you'll notice if you Google this, they don't have pictures associated with them. A lot of these people, if they were actors at all, were off Broadway, like, you know, kind of doing small things here and there. Some of them were not actors at all. Like the guy we mentioned who meets at the helicopter pad and gives that incredible, ridiculous pitch for the mousetrap. His name on in the is film. Stan Gottlieb. Stan Gottlieb. I guess that's the character's someone, name is Nathan, but that's the actor, Stan. Stan Gottlieb. So apparently that's just someone that Bob Downey met at a phone booth. It's like, I think you'd be good in a movie. And he just brought him in and he would... Like he, it doesn't seem at all like he's not a real actor, and I don't, I don't mean to be, but like he no, seems like he was bo- born to do it. You know, yeah. he seems total natural. The person who plays the Chinese character who's throwing the fireworks around, which is again the the, the Boogie Nights connection, and among other ways, he was someone who worked for the UN. He wasn't even an actor. And he kept saying, like, while they were filming with him, like, he had to get back to the U.N. There was, like, an emergency. And they're like, no, 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 we'll get you back. We'll get you back. And it's just crazy, like, all this stuff. And, like, again, watching it, I had no idea. It doesn't seem like he's not an actor, either of these characters. They seem great. No, I mean, it, it kind of leads into the conversation about Bob Downey Sr. Because uh, mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's clearly this ringleader type who just was able to corral all these crazy characters together to pull this off. And yeah, um, yeah, he just seems like a really fascinating guy. Uh, so for those who don't know, Bob Downey is Robert Downey Jr.'s father. Uh, also, you know, part of Robert Downey Jr.'s origin story as a result, you know, with all the the drugs and chaos that was going on in the, the 60s and 70s around Bob Downey. But uh, yeah, he's uh, he's a fascinating character. I mean, what's I, is your background with him pretty much just through Paul Thomas Anderson in that yeah, way? Yeah, just that. Because I mean, that's all it is for me. I forgot. I mean, when you mentioned the commentary earlier, I think 
because I've listened to both of those commentary tracks and totally agree with you. They're incredible. And I really wish he would do more of them for his movies that came after the fact. But he doesn't want to. So he can do what he wants. Um, but I think at the time I was not interested in exploring other films necessarily. I mean, I guess I was, but I wasn't interested in tracking down other movies that creative people I liked now were giving reference to. Mm. Now that's something I'm like fascinated by and I try to devour as much as I can. So I think that's why I didn't remember that from the commentary when you were talking about Bob Downey. But I do remember I had to Google because I heard that he was in Boogie Nights. He shows up. And I was like, what? Because I was seeing pictures of him in old age. And I was like, I can't remember who he plays. And then I saw the picture of him. He's the he's the record producer. And I was like, and it all came flooding back. I was like, oh, my goodness. That's right. I remember Paul talking about getting Bob Downey to do this scene. And he's, he's great in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was really, really it. I've not... I've actually, I couldn't name another one of his films, even after seeing Putney Swope. I still can't to this day. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, they all seem like I'm definitely intrigued. I definitely want to explore it further, but, uh, something about this one does seem to really land with people. And I should also say this too. So I mentioned Paul Thomas Anderson and, and Louis, uh, and the commentary track, Bob Downey mentioned that uh, other people like Sam Jackson, Dave Chappelle, Eddie Murphy have been very complimentary to him about the movie and and have meant so much to him. So I tried to track down like a quote or something from any of them, but I couldn't find one. But it's like this movie is it's it's got really great fans, like really famous people who I adore and respect really vibe with this film. And it got to the point where I guess. Bob Downey was even working with Eddie Murphy about doing a modern day remake version of it. Hmm. I don't know how far that got. I don't know if maybe it never was going to happen or maybe it certainly won't happen now that he's not with us anymore. I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, I hesitate to say this, but it is kind of a remakeable movie. You know, I know. And normally I bristle at that. But with this, I would be like, and and it's not to try to improve. I I really love this movie as it is, but I would be curious to see what a modern day take on it would be. And a lot of the issues they're tackling in this movie have really not changed that much. Yeah. So uh, I think that part of it would be as fresh as ever. But Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, Bob Dowdy does strike me as a fascinating filmmaker, and I am very curious to explore more of his his stuff outside of this i don't know if i'm going to rush to put it on the board necessarily i think i'll probably do it on my own but uh but a fascinating guy fascinating i want to say there's another one of his movies on the criterion channel right now so for anybody who's interested to check out more bob downey if you did a uh, trial to watch this movie you can also watch that um i'm blanking on the name of it but i I, i'm pretty sure that i saw that he had uh, two up there Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, But no, I mean, I'm glad you brought up kind of like influences and like the ways that this kind of talks with modern day comedy because I I mean, this movie, especially when you're getting into the commercial aspects of it, because this movie's constantly doing these vignettes of, of, you know, these crazy, absurd commercials (laughs) that this company is producing. And 
every one of them is more insane than the one before it. But uh, I was watching these things and I'm like, this is so clearly a predecessor to like Old Spice commercials, you know, and oh absurdity. My God. And like, um, you know, I, I'm thinking of like like sketch comedy shows like I Think You Should Leave and, um, uh, oh man, I should have written more down. Oh, even like uh, Tim and Eric, awesome show, great job, uh, robot dude, chicken, you know, stuff like this is it, totally. it, it all kind of seems to have roots in this. Dude, think of, uh, I mean, we mentioned Dave Chappelle earlier. Think of uh, Chappelle's show, the commercials they would do in that, where, mm-hmm. whether it's like ribs, where they, he had ribs as like a uh, kind of like a palliative, like medicine. Yeah. And he's like pulling ribs out. He had the thing with the love contract where it was like this kind of like anti-problematic thing. Uh, but yeah, so he had a lot of commercials in his sketches too. And I bet this movie was really influential towards this whole comedy scene that you're talking about generally, like, I think you're totally spot on. No, I mean, the first one, like, I mean, obviously, like, the couple singing the song about how the guy saw her beaver. Uh, so funny. You know, like, like stuff like that. I mean, it's like, you can Dude. see, you can see Tenacious D in it. You can see, yep. like, like there, it's, it's, yes, it's all over the place. Yes. And that first commercial that happens, I, I didn't see it coming. I did not see that we were going to cut to color all of a sudden. And just the, we have to give a shout out to the product names in this movie are fucking hilarious. And the first one being Ethereal Serial, which is one of the funniest names I've ever heard of. And again, all of a sudden we're in color and there's just this voiceover about like the health benefits of the serial. And it's just this slow zoom in and it ends with the character in the frame just going, no shit. And it's so funny. I was just, I was rolling laughing. It was just so, I was like, I can't wait. I was like, I hope they do more of these commercials. And of course they delivered. Oh yeah. And like you said, they get stranger and stranger. And that longer and just more absurd. Yeah. And it's just like, again, I had no idea that we were going to get into this sort of vignette sketch comedy territory in this movie. I I pre- I thought it was going to be strange and I thought based on the context I had it was going to be kind of random seeming, but I didn't see that coming. And that was a very pleasant and beloved surprise. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you completely that you can see its impact all over the place. Yeah. Can I tell you my favorite of the commercials? Please do. Please do. I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. My favorite is this beautiful woman dancing down the alleyway with a homeless man passed out on the side of the, the, the alley. And she's just dancing down. The camera's kind of, you know, dollying to the right as, as she walks towards the camera. And all she says is, you can't eat an air conditioner. Turns around, dances her way back into the fog. <laughs> Fucking. I, I was in stitches. I was dead. So, so funny. And speaking about that specific commercial, that woman dancing was just a waiter that yeah. Bob had met somehow. Yeah. Not even, and she, she's amazing. She's amazing in that scene. And that bum, uh, that homeless guy who was asleep on the sidewalk was a real homeless guy who was asleep there when they got there and they woke him up and told him what they're doing. And he just went back to sleep and they just shot it. Like, again, it's, it's just 
crazy. And again, I don't know what that commercial really means, but it's so fucking funny. Well, it ends up being a commercial for a fan. A fan. <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh my God. The commercials. I think my favorite one is probably the acne one face off mm. with like the, cause again, this I saw your beaver and then it's not the same. And just the, the it's shot in this like wholesome, ridiculous manner but they're talking about like dry humping at the fair and all this stuff. It looks it's like so a, a scene from like reading rainbow or something. <laughs> yeah, totally. And what is the line? It's like, um, my, my boyfriend is out of sight and so are his pimples. Like I just was like fucking crying laughing. And actually I forgot about one of the other commercials that I might like more was the one for the pies. That had one of my favorite comedy lines of dialogue I have heard in a very long time. So the shtick, as you remember, is like, it's Miss Redneck, New Jersey, some town of New Jersey. Oh, and she yes. kind of bursts out and she's getting interviewed. And, or before she's getting interviewed, the person doing the voiceover for like the Miss America style competition, it just says... Eugenie is a graduate of the Sawbone T-Bone Diner in Redneck, where she majored in philosophy. She's a social worker, and her favorite hobby is emasculation. <laughs> Those two lines together are one of the funniest things I have ever heard in my life. And I was just like, this movie fucking rules, dude. It's so funny. The commercials are are pretty freaking fantastic. I mean, across the board, I don't think of any of them didn't make me laugh. I guess the only one that's kind of weird is the uh, the the flight attendants jumping oh, the in the tr the transparent shirts. Lucky um, air. <laughs> the only reason that one's weird is because, uh, by all accounts, they didn't know how much they were revealing in that shot. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously, the woman with her you know, boobs completely flying out is one thing, but yeah. uh, I guess they, they thought they were going to be more in silhouette apparently, but I don't know. Just wanted to call attention to that. Cause yeah, that one's a little, little sketchy, <laughs> but otherwise I thought all of them were fucking funny as shit. I'll say that lucky air one is another time where the music, I was just like, what is this? The music, music was, was great. fucking great. Well, while like, you were I need talking, that track. Where is that track? I need it. Well, look in the chat. Cause I just sent you a link or a little bit earlier. That is a link to the soundtrack for this movie, which is all performed by a guy named Charlie Kuva. Oh, and fuck yeah. So it is all original possibly. I, it is. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. is. The whole soundtrack is him. Oh, nice, dude. I, I'm After we're done recording, I'm chucking that shit out for sure. And I wanted to give one more shout out to that Lucky Air scene. The guy who comes crawling in, you know how they say, like, Lucky Passenger number, blah, blah, blah. They page him. And he, like, crawls into this kind of, like, den of seduction or whatever the fuck it is. That was just a crew member. They just needed a guy to crawl in there. So they talked this guy into doing it. He actually said Bob Downey should do it. He's like, I can't do it. I'm making the movie. But the way that guy crawls in when he enters the frame just makes me howl. It's so, so funny to me. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a fucking fun movie. But, you know, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, we've been on a 
pretty big comedy kick here on Dartboard Movie Night. We've yeah, had so like random. three in the last five weeks or something like that that were yeah. all just comedies. And they do they are kind of hard to talk about without just turning into a uh, you know favorite bit fest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think what's interesting about this movie is like I I kind of had a little bit of trouble latching onto this movie for more than like individual bits. You yeah. know, the overall story and, and everything happening in this movie, not that it, it's supposed to matter because I know it's not, um, but it didn't, you know, it didn't totally hang together for me. And it and there yeah. were moments where I found myself kind of drifting away from it because it like, yeah, like again, like not all of it just works anymore. No. Yeah. I mean, and I think Bob Downey, based on what he said in the commentary, agrees with us. There's a one point where like it's when, the group of ad people, they hear about the pitch for the mousetrap and they're really trying to lure Putney Swope in. Somewhere around there, Bob Downey in the commentary is just like, oh, God, some of these jokes are going to be painful. Yeah. And then he goes on to mention, like, I don't know if he was asked or he just says in the commentary. It's like people ask if it's like my favorite movie. It's not my favorite movie I've done. Um, and he's like, he's like, I don't really like any of them. He's like, I like I like parts but hmm. there's other parts I don't like. And it was so interesting to hear a filmmaker speak that frankly, honestly kind of refreshing. And I agreed with him. Like there are, I, I would imagine I do not agree with him on specifically which bits work and don't work. Mm-hmm. But that was my vibe, especially on first watch. I was like, all right, so this is a, first watch was like, this is a jumbled mess, but... There are bits I like and there's bits I don't. And, you know, we've been mostly praising it overall. I will say this might be kind of an interesting time to segue into the shit that didn't work for us. Um, but it, but I think I think it sounded like Bob Downey is right on our wavelength, too. Like, not all of this works. And probably certain things work for different people and certain don't. Yeah. But I'll just start off by saying, like, an example of something that really didn't work for me especially on first viewing was the stuff with like president Vimeo. Yeah. Like, or Ninio. I can't remember the Mimeo, character name. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like, uh, this is just not funny. Like it's, it's, it's seems it like just it's, feels like the whole bit is that it's a little person. Yeah. And I, I heard that that wasn't the bit. Like, I guess Bob Downey said he cast that, that actor just because he had the best reading. It wasn't because he was a little person. I don't know if I buy that. Well, I mean, I, I who knows? But point being, that all just seemed like really cheap laughs. And I was like, yeah. I'm not finding any of this funny. It doesn't... It, it. I don't know what it's trying to say. I don't know really what a lot of the this only, movie is trying to say. The only funny bit in that whole section for me is uh, where the bald guy is like, we smoked some grass, I got some good shit. Oh, see, that I, I did not react to the bald guy at all. I didn't that, like, that I didn't one, like him. That either. line alone cracked me up, but the rest <laughs> of it doesn't work. I will say, though, on rewatch, I hit those scenes, and I, I still was not laughing at the quote-unquote jokes that are in those scenes, but I did start laughing at a lot of the details that are going on in those sequences. So that's like, I think that's kind of the 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 pearl in there or whatever is like I was noticing like when he's first on the phone with with Swope like he's just getting brushed by this person with like like almost like something a little bit larger than a toothbrush 
And he's like brushing the person, his hat, the president's hat, his shoulder. And I'm like, that is just so fucking weird. I didn't notice it the first time. And then like his wife playing piano in front of a massive portrait of the president, like where the music would live on the piano. Mm -hmm. Like all this, I, I really liked and laughed at all those details on second viewing. But the jokes and the gags that the scene was living on do not work for me. Yeah. And that's when I was like, that's when I was kind of starting to check my watch a little bit. I'd be like, oh, this is just kind of lame. Like, And I do think even on second viewing, even on second viewing and even with how much I love this movie, I do think it kind of starts to stall towards the end of it. The Vimeo stuff aside. Uh, but specifically, those were the ones... Those Vimeo jokes were just like this is just not funny. It's kind of cheap, and I'm not I'm not really reacting to it at all. Yeah, the only other bit involving the president that I actually really dug was uh, one in a long chain of bits, which is the Mark Focus bit. Oh, is that the uh, the photographer who comes up? Oh, and like, yes, I I love that. This bit is too. this is what I did for Nabisco. This is what I did for Kodak. <laughs> this is what I did for Jimmy Carter. <laughs> <laughs> Swope is, I think he's with his, is he with his wife or his mistress at that I've point? I've seen when, enough. You're the best in the business, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Just that, that is another thing in this movie that we can hit too is repetition. But that photographer gag, when he just shows up in the bedroom, is so funny and then shows up in the president's, but it's the portrait of the, pre, of, of the president's. It's just, this is just, this is so random and it's so Weird. And I agree. That bit I liked. I liked that photographer bit, too. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, any other bits you, you have that stand out? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, again, kind of overall. But the guy with the cane and the sunglasses who was ranting all the time, I loved his rants. <laughs> and they were so, so funny to me. And... Bob Downey was saying in the commentary that when he was working with this actor and this guy was a proper actor, I think he would mostly did off Broadway stuff, but he was an actor. He would just give him like kind of like a basic idea of like what they're going for. And this guy would just go off and do something like far better than Downey mentioned that he could envision. And I just was cracking up thinking like watching these again, especially when he's like dressing down Swope and like uh, con like confronting him aggressively in front of everyone saying he's like jive and all this, that it's like those scenes were really, really funny to me and uh, and really good. I liked him a lot. So the character's name was the the Arab and the actor's <laughs> name was Antonio Fargus. And he actually has one hundred and thirty five credits on IMDb. Wow. All right. So he's. He's he worked legit. a lot. Yeah, worked a lot. But yeah, I like that rant quite a bit. Um, I, I briefly mentioned it, but the mousetrap pitch that just gets <laughs> thrown on the guy from the helicopter pad. Is it Stan? Stan Gottlieb? Is Stan that his Gottlieb. name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is just so absurd and has absolutely nothing to do with mouse traps or anything. That was another line that you're talking about me. the one with like Columbus and and the yeah Indians Columbus and arrives and like the Indian says, sheds a single tear. <laughs> yeah. I actually had one thing like specifically out of that trap 
<laughs> mousetrap speech that I loved. Again, this guy's just going on this nonsense about you know Columbus and all this shit. He says, at one point, out of the bushes comes a 75-year-old squaw with a cleft head and an axe in her back. And it's just like, this is just so fucking weird. <laughs> with a cleft head. It's fantastic. Axe in her back. It's just like, and then I love that Swope fires him after that. Swope's like, that's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> I will say one thing Bob Downey's voice doing Putney Swope makes for a decent uh, like impression to pull off. Yeah, that's true. It, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's favorable for people like us who like to try to reenact it, which I guess makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, we are white, Jared. Yeah. <laughs> Wet Hot American Summer clearly got influence from this movie, too. Never seen it. Never seen it? Never seen it. That's a good one. Um, I mean, more just in that kind of meandery, sketchy quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but another one, speaking of Robert Altman, going back to Paul Thomas Anderson connection, because that's another filmmaker that he obsesses about, Brewster McCloud, another weird-ass fucking early 70s, actually maybe late 60s, on that one. No, I think it was 1970 that that came out. So the following year after this, but that movie is vignette as hell and weird as fuck. And I, I feel McLeod. like you could maybe, you could maybe be into that movie. I didn't dig that movie, but you might, uh, I'm not going to put it on the move maybe board, but that's one I want to watch for myself. So yeah, you should. It's an early, it's early Altman. It came out the same year, uh, as mash. Yeah, I do. I do really dig, Vignetti sort of stuff. So I think you might be onto something about how I might I might respond to that. Well, I bet yeah, I would. You should check it out. Yeah. I also really want to call out the Wikipedia entry on this movie, and I want to put a <laughs> shout out to anybody out there who does any editing and research for fucking Wikipedia. Update the shit out of the Putney Swope page because the <laughs> fucking production section of that page is a joke. What can I say? can I just show you what what was in that? So okay. Uh, can I read it to you, rather, for the show? Please do. Yeah, uh, please do. There's one. So there's three paragraphs in this entire production section, which normally outlines kind of where the you know how the movie got you know, written and produced and all the details of that. On this movie, it's three paragraphs, two of which are one sentence. The first paragraph is the only one that is somewhat informative, which says, in an interview on the DVD commentary, or excuse me. In an interview on the DVD version of the film, Downey states that Arnold Johnson had great difficulty memorizing and saying his lines during the film shoot. Downey says that he was not concerned because he had developed a plan to dub in his own voice to replace Johnson's. Okay, trivia, tidbit, great, right? Somewhat true. By the way, it was the camera operator who told him. Okay, because well, so he was it's under even the wrong. Great job, yeah, Wikipedia. Yeah. Idiots, absolute idiots. idiots. Here are the other two fucking paragraphs, Jared. <laughs> Though the movie is in black and white, Truth and Souls commercials are shown in color. Wow. That's, in, that's informative. That's good production details there. Second paragraph. The Mel Brooks who plays Mr. Forget It is not the renowned comedian filmmaker. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's Dude. the extent of the production section on Wikipedia. Dude, that is... And, and you know what's the most frustrating thing about it? And this is just for the audience out there. First time I'm hearing this. I didn't read the Wikipedia. So someone watched the commentary because they mentioned the commentary in the, in the blurb. But they didn't go on to give any detail about how it, again, like I said, it was the cinematographer, the DP, who was like, 
you know, Downey was freaking out about the dialogue and the guy's like, don't worry about it with that beard, with the beard the actor has, you can you can get anything in there. And then one of the reasons that Downey said in the commentary was the shifts for color is it was, I think, if I'm remembering it right, is it like kind of less stressful for the DP? Mm. Like if the color stuff didn't look great, it's fine. It's a commercial and it's just like a segment of it. I think I could be misremembering that now that I'm saying it, but it was something along those lines of like there was really had they had reasons to shifting into color. But just to say that anyone with eyes could see that just use that as a fact. It's just like that is such a waste of electronic ink. I was so frustrated reading that section. I was just like, really? And then the, the worst part of it is there is an interesting story of how this movie was made, which is the underground filmmaking shit you were yeah. talking about earlier. Like, it is fascinating. And a none of it's in there. To, a lot more cool shit to be said. Two sure. non-trivia facts, trivia yeah. facts, and a misremembered trivia fact. That's all mm -hmm. that's in the section. <laughs> it sounds like Wikipedia to me. Fantastic. <laughs> Now I know why well, our parents told us not to use it as a source. Yeah, and we always we always preface our kind of internet research grain of salt. This is why, you there know, you we go. know we know there you go. we know grain not to trust salt. it. Hey, we are idiots after all. Of course, of course. I had a couple of things I wanted to hit before we kind of close out Putney Swope. So Bob Downey, when he was in New York and in the early days worked for a film house and one of their kind of side gigs that they were tasked to do was to create these sort of weird commercials. So they would create like these sort of fake commercials. So ad agencies would come to this film house and they'd be like, do something absurd for something like Preparation H or Hemorrhoid Cream, like a very kind of undesirable, difficult product. And they would be tasked, these Bob Downey and his team, with just going off and making something outlandish that would never make it to air, but to just kind of open up the eyes of like what could be done with something like this. And that was one of the germs of him getting the idea for this movie, was like him just doing this thing on, I guess he said on Saturday they shot these fake commercials, and on Sunday they did their own stuff. But like that was kind of, I think one of the ways that kept the lights on it seemed. And to be clear, I don't think Downey like owned this or anything. I think he was just a hired hand at this company's the impression that I got. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I thought that was kind of interesting that he had had this sort of kind of experience with making kind of fake ridiculous commercials and then decided to kind of transplant that transplant that into this movie that he was making. So that yeah. was really cool. No, that's really cool. And then the, uh, do you remember that conversation? There's the token white guy in the movie after the yeah. flip. And he comes in and asks for the raise. Yes. And Putney Swope says, like, well, if I give you a raise, then I have to give him a raise, too. And then we're back to where we started. That was a real conversation that Bob Downey had with someone where he found out one of his black coworkers was wasn't getting paid as much as he was for the same thing. So he went to the boss's office and told the boss, and that's what the boss told him. Well, it's like that like exact thing of like, well, if I give him a raise, then I have to give you a raise, and we're back where we started. So that was actually a conversation that Bob Downey had, and he brought it into the film. I thought nice. that was really cool, too. Yeah. And then one last thing was I heard that when he was researching the film, I think it was... 
Bob Downey had like a friend who worked at an ad agency or something, or he had an in somehow. And they brought him into like a meeting so where he could just observe. And the ruse that they did was they said that Bob Downey was from like South America and didn't speak any English so that no one would ask him any questions and he could just kind of sit there and observe. So I thought that was kind of interesting too. It seems like a good way to get out of a, a meeting that you don't want to be a part of. Yeah, just pretend, just pretend that you don't speak the language and just sit there. But, but yeah, but I think that kind of, for me, hits on kind of a lot of the stuff I wanted to touch on with this movie. I really liked it a lot. I'm, I'm kind of like swooning over the parts that I really dug. I'm a, a little bit in love with it, but it's not a perfect movie, but I can see. Don't hit your bets, baby. Go for it. Yeah, it's just it's I I I the stuff that I love, I really really love. And as we've kind of hashed out through this chat, it's it's fingerprints are fucking everywhere. And it's it's a I can see why it's such an impactful movie to people and I really loved it. And if you only saw it the once, someday soon see it a second time because I do think No, it, I did watch it twice. I mean, oh, the second okay, time cool. I was kind of a little bit distracted, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's something today I was I was sober as a judge watching it. And I was like, I feel stoned. I feel like I've just kind of been brought into this and I'm under its spell and I'm rolling with it and really enjoying the strangeness and how bizarre it is. And it's just uh, that stuff today was really hitting me and I, I loved it. I, I really like this movie a lot. I'm super glad we hit it. And I'm very, very curious to see what's next. Yeah. No, I mean, I had a great time with this movie, too. Uh, but I think that'll do it for our episode on on Putney Swope. I, uh, yeah, I'm glad we got to watch this piece of film history. And, you know, I, I definitely understand more about the origins of some of the comedy we watch these days better having for seen sure. this. So, yeah, I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Well, let's get to putting something else on the board here. I'm not mistaken, it's your week this week. Do you have any contenders, anything like that? It sure is my week, Jared, and I do have contenders, but I think I've already narrowed it down, actually. I've had this movie on my radar for years and years now. It's a movie that, in some ways, from what I understand anyway, I mean, we'll do more research on it when we get to it, but it in some ways launched the career of, of a really interesting filmmaker that uh, is still you know, working right now and is, is doing some interesting work. Uh, his name is Thomas Alfredson, and the film is Let the Right One In. Are you familiar mm. with it? I am not familiar with either the film or the filmmaker. Okay. That, that I, so you know I'm down already just with so the, what we've said. I'll, I'll say one of the filmmaker's other movies ju- that I know That's that fine. you know, uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, okay. I do. I do like that movie quite a bit. I think it's a little overrated, but I dig it. I, and I, I, that movie, I don't think people look back on as being like a masterpiece or anything. Oh, I think it was one of those movies. When it came out, I, I was expecting greatness, and I was like, "Oh, it's it's good. I liked it." But I didn't understand the hoopla. But I, I might be misremembering the hoopla. Well, let the right one in is much more genre-y than that movie is. Um, it's a vampire movie, actually. Cool. So All right. I'm pretty stoked to watch it. It's one that I've been aware of for a long time. My brother said is incredible, and I trust his taste probably more than anyone. You know, like you and him are probably my two guys that I would trust with a recommendation almost any time. So, uh, yeah, 
I'm excited to put to get to this at some point, but I'm going to put let the right one in on the board in place of Putney Swope at number 16. All right, I love that, dude. Want to run through the list before we throw it? Let's do it. At number one, you've got You Can Count On Me. At number two, Ex Machina. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, The Sixth Sense. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, The Fifth Element. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, Big Daddy. Number 11, Vertigo. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The King of Comedy. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Let the Right One In. Number 17, Repo Man. Number 18, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Number 19, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And at number 20, Kung Fu Hustle. Fucking love it, dude. All right, ready to throw it? (laughs) Yeah, man, let's see what we get. Well, Drew, the dart has spoken. What's it got to say this week? 17. 17 just got on the board. It's Repo Man. Whoa! That's All quick. Right. Hey, That's man. quick. That the, the board does what it wants. Wait a minute. So I'm on a bit of a hot streak here, a little bit. How many is it now? I forget, man, because I... No, it's not a hot streak because I broke it up with mother. That's true, but I think. But point being, I'm making a comeback, baby. Oh, in I'm terms of overall numbers, you're you're roaring back for sure because mm. you had Alan Partridge, the Birdcage, the Ballad of Cable Hogue. Then we had Mother. Now we have uh, Putney Swope, and Putney Swope, and, and Repo Man. So wow, this is you put is up crazy, you put up man. five. We've never had one so quick on the board and so quick to select. This is kind of cool. Yeah, this is a, a new new territory for us here. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into it next week on the specifics, but as far as I know, it's a movie neither of us have seen, which I always love when that happens. Yeah, well, we're also hanging around some uh, familiar numbers here. We, we've gone 15, 20, 17, 16, and then 17 again. Wow. I'm going to have to make a push to the top of the board, I think. I guess, yeah. Mm, mm. Well... Excited to watch Repo Man with you uh, for next week. And yeah, we'll be back next week with that episode. For now, thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show was created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Later. Sorry, Mike.